It's been translated into over 200 different languages. And it's never, get this, never been out of print one time. And this book was actually one of the favorite books of one of my favorite pastors, Charles Spurgeon. He first read the book when he was six years old. And then through his lifetime, every year and even more, he would read the book again. And he read the book over a hundred times throughout his life. The book is Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you may have read it. Others may have not read it. But um, the book itself is an incredible story about this man. And his name is Christian. And Christian is a man who's living in the city of man or the city of destruction. And he discovers this book. And he opens the book and he begins to read this book. And the book began to explain to him that that, uh, this city is going to be destroyed. And so he's wanting to flee from the wrath that is to come. And as he's reading through this book, he discovers that there is this incredibly large burden that has now been placed upon his back because he knows himself and he knows how he stands in opposition to the king who lives in the celestial city. And so he wants to be saved from the wrath that is to come. He wants to have this burden removed from his back. And so he leaves the city of destruction and he begins to walk out into a field. And when he walks out into this field, He runs into this man whose name is Evangelist. And Evangelist speaks to this man. Christian, wanting the burden that it was on his back to be lifted, to be taken away, he asks the Evangelist, he says, where must I go? He's saying, where must I go to get this thing taken care of? Where can I go to be saved from the wrath that is to come? And the Evangelist says to him, look off there in the distance. Do you see the wicked gate? So he tells him to go to this wicked gate. So he walks across the field. Christian walks across the field. As he gets to this place where there is this gate, he looks. And on top of the the doorway there, there there's these words that are written over the gate. It says, knock and it shall be opened unto you. And so he knocks. The door is open. And Christian then begins to tell the man who is there named Goodwill. He says to him, Someone has informed me that if I come to this place, there is a gate. And if I go through this gate, there is a path. And at the end of that path, there is the celestial city. And so Christian walks through the gate, sets off on the path to go to the celestial city. Discipleship begins at the wicked gate. Discipleship begins at the wicked gate. Now, Over the last couple of years, we've been talking a lot about discipleship. We've been talking about this word discipleship. What does discipleship mean? And I guess more importantly, as we begin this series on discipleship, why is discipleship really that important? Why is it really essential to the church? After all, we've been doing church uh, the, the same way over and over and over again for years. Why is it that discipleship ought to be so highly focused in upon? Well, there's a need for discipleship in our church. There's a need for discipleship in the church at large. In fact, Bill Hull, as he's writing uh, one of these great works on discipleship and pastoral uh, leadership in discipleship, he opens his book with this phrase. He says, I maintain that the evangelical church is weak, self-indulgent, and superficial, that it has been thoroughly discipled by its culture. Now, the truth is, he's right, isn't he? 
We look back maybe at the last 60, last 75 years of the American church. Maybe we look back at just our church and we look at our own individual lives. Which has been more successful in discipling us? God and his word or our own culture? Does the culture shape the way that we understand our world? Does the culture shape the way that we, we think things are important, the things, the things that are not important? Or does the scriptures shape the way we understand the world? There's a crisis in most churches in America. And there's a crisis in the lives of many of you today. Where we're not actually growing in our faith, we're just simply getting by. We're just kind of coasting through life. But God wants us to be more faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Another man, Elton Trueblood, he put it this way. He said, perhaps the greatest single weakness of the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all. And what is worse, do not think it's strange that they are not. As soon as we recognize Christ's intention to make his church a militant company, we understand at once that the conventional arrangement cannot suffice. There is no real chance of victory in a campaign if 90% of the soldiers are untrained and uninvolved. But that is exactly where we stand now. Most alleged Christians do not know, do not now understand that loyalty to Christ means sharing personally in his ministry. Going or staying (coughs) as the situation requires. (coughs) Jesus said that when a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. When a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. But the problem is we run into a conflict. And Greg Ogden points this out in his book, Transformational Discipleship. He, he points out that there are, there are several things in conflict when we try to think about discipleship, especially in regards to our own lives as, as church members, as Christians. The first of these is he says there's a, a passive recipients versus proactive ministers. Passive recipients versus proactive ministers. We should all be seeking to be proactive ministers. It isn't just the guy who's paid here that is a minister. The Bible says that we are all ministers of reconciliation. We are all called to be ministers. And the problem that we run into in our culture is that we live in a consumeristic culture. And so as a result, when we think about church, we want to consume it. We want to consume. We want to receive. We are, we are passively receiving. In fact, the entire way that we formulated how American churches are set up is a passive recipient kind of way. You notice that's the way we are right now. Right? You're receiving what I'm speaking. We receive and we receive and we receive. We consume and we consume and we consume. But the object is not just that we consume and receive God's word, but that we actively produce. That we become ministers of the gospel. We have to not just receive, but we have to produce. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he says to each He's talking about you to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. God did not give you the Holy Spirit so that you would just be happy and sanctified. God gave you the Holy Spirit so that you would go ahead and minister for the common good that you would assist 
that you would share the gospel, that you would train up others to follow after Jesus Christ. So the first conflict is between passive recipients versus proactive ministers. The second one is spiritually undisciplined versus spiritually disciplined. We ought to be living lives that are disciplined lives. Now, when you think back, we just went through the Olympics just a few weeks ago. Think back about the Olympics. They kept showing all of these different stories about these different people in their lives. And I don't know, I think I resonated with what Gentry was saying. I I feel like as I'm watching this on the TV and I'm sitting on the couch, I feel very, very lazy in comparison to most of those people. I don't like to run. And here these people are like running all the time and they're getting up at four o'clock in the morning and they're doing this and they're doing that and they're, you know, jumping around in the snow. I'm not doing any of those things, but they're disciplined. They're doing what they need to do in order to be the best in the world. Friends, do you realize that that same kind of discipline ought to apply to us spiritually? We ought to be getting up and studying the word of God. We ought to be focusing our attention daily on accountability and relationships and strengthening one another and equipping one another and encouraging one another and memorizing the scripture and meditating on the scripture, devoting ourselves fully to Christ because we ought to be the best in the world at what we do. And that is being a disciple. Paul says, athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a gold medal. But we, we do it for an imperishable wreath, an imperishable medal, an imperishable inheritance. The third conflict is that there's this idea of private faith versus holistic discipleship. Private faith versus holistic discipleship. We have to understand that the discipleship affects all of our lives. Now, what we have come to in our own culture is we have categorized things, haven't we? We know what we do on Sundays. We come here, right? We know what we do on Mondays. We go to work. We go to school. We do this or we do that. And we break our lives up into these different categories so that as we think about our life, we don't think about discipleship or following Christ as being the thing that really is woven throughout all of the activities of our lives. We categorize it. Instead of thinking holistically, we categorize what we think is most important for that particular time. But the promise that is, has been given to us is that if we will repent and believe in the gospel, we are no longer our own. We don't get the choice to make categories in our life. We've been purchased by Christ. And this is the amazing thing is we've been transferred from this this dark, lonely, Satan-infested kingdom into now the kingdom of the beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been taken and rescued from this place into another place. And so the place that we now live is his kingdom. And therefore, there is this new authority. There is a new regime that is taken up in your heart. And that authority affects everything about your life. So it's not as though we can categorize, but we live a life of discipleship and following Jesus Christ holistically. The product that we're attempting to come to is that we ought to have a continual participation in discipling kinds of relationships. And these relationships ought to be intentional. And that we're walking together with one another in this great journey with Christ. 
We're going down the path together. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to equip one another. We're called to love one another so that all of us are maturing into the image of Christ. And so our goal in this series through the wicket gate is to explain what does a disciple look like? What does a disciple look like? Throughout the next 11 times that we are together looking at this series, we'll focus on topics like this morning, looking at the right path, looking at the right path, or, or what is the calling of a disciple, or what are the character qualities of a disciple? How should a disciple understand the use of time? How should a, a disciple think about Bible study? How should a disciple think about prayer and worship and love and bearing fruit and unity and evangelism? All of these things are so critical. To who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So in this message this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus as he's preaching to the crowds. On the Sermon on the Mount. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven. Just a little bit of context about what's happening here in these in these verses, Jesus is sitting He's teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God. And he's been explaining to them that that following him is going to be a lot different than following after the world. Following him is going to be completely different than everything that they've experienced before. And so over and over and over again, he says to them, you have heard that it was said, but now I tell you this. So he's turning these things on their head and he's honing in on the fact that God is not just concerned about what happens in the outsides of your life, in the activities of your life. God is considerably concerned about what's going on inside your heart. He cares about the motivations. He cares about the reasons for why we do the things that we do. And Jesus is saying that disciples, his disciples, will be obvious to the world. His disciples will be obvious to the world. In fact, it's through the, the transparency of their lives that we will be able to see and know who are disciples of Christ and who are not disciples of Christ. Jesus' disciples, he says, are to be lights in the world. They're, they're to be like light coming out of a lampstand. So they should be shining forth in a dark world. It would be really, really difficult to not notice light if you were in a dark room, right? It's obvious. It's right there in front of you. Jesus' disciples, they're also, he says, supposed to be like salt. They're to be a people that that add flavor and zest to the lives around them. But they're also to be people who who bring about restoration, bring about healing in the lives of those around. them. So up until this point, Jesus has talked about their hearts. He's talked about the importance of treasuring things in heaven. He's, he's talked about not being worried, not being anxious, but but living their lives, trusting in the Lord and what he has done for them. And now he's coming to the end of his sermon and Jesus being the greatest preacher who has ever lived. He concludes his sermon by asking them to make a decision. Asking them to make a decision. Look there in verse 13. Chapter 7. Jesus begins his conclusion by saying this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus 
tells them and he tells us this morning that we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. There are two paths that stretch out in front of us and we're going to have to decide whether we're going to go down the narrow path or we're going to go down the wide path. But he gives us some very good information about the paths because he wants us to choose correctly. So let's notice, first of all, the gate. Examine the gate. Examine the gate. One of the things, when you look back at John Bunyan's tale, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the things I love most about Pilgrim's Progress is all of the allegory. An allegory is a story where um, most of the things, not, not everything, but most of the things that are in the story stand for something else. Um, so when he talks about uh, the, 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 the friend, like the evangelist, uh, the man's name is evangelist, but what is he? He's actually an evangelist. And so you have all of these different characters that pop up, whether it's obstinate or ignorance or, or, or uh, cities like vainglory. All of these things pop up. But there's, there's, there's significance because there's something one-to-one in reality that these things are being tied to. But he does this throughout the book. It's, it's an allegory. And in the story, this man, Christian, as he's speaking with this man called evangelist, uh, this is their conversation. Christian asks him, where must I go? Then the evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, he says, do you see that wicked gate over there? And the man says to him, no, I don't see it. The evangelist says, do you see that shining light off in the distance? And Christian says, I think that I do. And evangelist says, keep that light in your eyes and go directly to it so that you will see the gate. And when you knock, you will be told what you should do. Now, automatically, you're seeing maybe even the gate imagery. You're seeing the light imagery. You see what Bunyan's beginning to kind of point us towards, right? But when you, when you hear that word wicked gate, what, what is a wicked gate? Some of you may know. Most of the time, maybe we think of uh, maybe a stone wall and a, and a wooden gate that you know, helps you partition go through to a different pasture or something like that. Later on, that's what it would kind of come to mean. But in Bunyan's day, it meant something different. In Bunyan's day, a wicked gate was basically a door. It was a small door that was centered in a very much um, a larger door system. And so the person could, could enter the small door without having to open up these massive doors uh, into a barn or something like that. So what we're seeing, it's kind of like if you were to think about a pet door, right? You have a pet. If you have a pet, you've installed one of those pet doors. Uh, you, you don't want to have to open up the door every single time you want to let the cat in. And so you install the pet door so that the cat can come in at his leisure, right? That's the same concept. It's a personal access panel for that cat or for that person. So when we look at this wicked gate, it's a personal entrance. The narrowness of the gate means that you can't enter the gate with other people, right? When you think about our relationship with God, we, we can't enter the gate on the heels of your parents. You can't enter the gate on the, the skirt tails of other people around you. You must enter the gate by yourself. It's all by yourself. You have to enter the gate by yourself. Now, what does Jesus say about the entry into the kingdom of God? As he's talking to the disciples in John chapter 10, you might recall, he, he reminds them that the only legitimate way for them to enter into the kingdom of God is by him. Jesus says in John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And in John 14, Jesus says he's 
in the upper room with the disciples, he, he reminds them that the only way that they can have hope, the only way that they can experience heaven is through him. He says to them in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So when you think about the gate, is the gate that you've tried to enter narrow or is it wide? Is, the nar- is it a narrow gate or is it a wide gate? Is it wide in that you, you simply went along with the crowd? Everybody was doing what you thought was acceptable. You walked an aisle, you were baptized, and all the while you never truly understood the gospel. But now here you sit for decades. Wondering now whether or not you've entered into the narrow gate. Is the gate wide and that you believe that you can enter into the kingdom of God based upon something that you have done? That you've attended all of these years, that you've been on a membership role for years or decades. That you can enter into the kingdom of God based on your own good track record. Your reputation precedes you. The gate wide? Or is it narrow? The only gate that leads to a narrow path, which in turn leads to life, is accessible through faith in Jesus Christ. God will have nothing to do with you aside from your trust in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The gate is very narrow. The gate is narrow, but we must also look at the path. We have to inspect the path. Jesus wants us to to, to understand that there's a difference between following him and following the world. Seems obvious maybe to us now, but he says that the gate that is wide leads to an easy and comfortable and relaxing kind of path. I mean, this path is, is just really nice. This path is relaxing. This path, it's got a wide shoulder. This path has all of your favorite restaurants on it. This path is, is a path where, where you, there's benches on the side if you need a place to stop and rest. This path is like going to Disney World. I mean, you go to Disney World, you enter into that massive gateway, and then it's just like the world has been transformed. You walk down little paths and little streets and little, little areas, and there's ice cream shops on every corner. And there's people on every corner dressed up in fancy costumes telling you, hey, this is something that you ought to see. Hey, this is something that you need to turn your attention to. But it's a world of diversion. It's a fantasy. Now, granted, there are many times in our lives that the Y path may not seem quite as wonderful as Disney World, but nevertheless, it is diversion for us. It takes our attention off what is real and true, what is eternal and right. And distracts us from the narrow way. For walking down the wide path, we will try to find the easiest route, the most comfortable route, the convenient route. We might refrain from building relationships with that coworker so we can share the gospel because maybe it's just a little bit inconvenient for our schedule. We will assume that it's only normal to live a life of prayerlessness, a life ignorant of the Bible, a life without conviction. And we live safe and happy lives, even though God has called us to give up everything and follow after him. We might say things like, well, you know, I, I like my life the way it is. I'm happy. I like the world that I live in. I make time for the things that I, I know that I'm going to enjoy. 
Friends, if it doesn't seem as if the journey that you're on with Christ is hard and laborious and painful and difficult at times, then you might want to check to see which path you're on. Listen to what Jesus says about a life committed to discipleship. In John chapter 15, he says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Luke 9, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. In Matthew 10, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross up and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake... We'll find it. Friends, the path that Jesus is describing is really hard, isn't it? It's a hard path. And so we have to ask the question, if your life, if your Christian life and your Christian experience is all happy and roses, if it's not confrontational, if it's not difficult, if it's not strenuous at all, you have to ask yourself, what path are you on? The gate is narrow. The path is hard. And the people, we have to look around at the people. Look around at the people. Do you ever feel like as you're trying to live your life for Christ, the way that you view life doesn't really match up with the way that our culture views life? It's almost like you've got two different ideas just colliding all of the time. You read the news. You sometimes think, how in the world could I possibly live my life if I did not have the hope of the resurrection? How would there be any happiness in my life? How would there be any hope, any joy in my life? Many times we struggle because we want to think like what our culture wants us to think. Jesus says that we ought to be cautious about doing the things that our peers are doing or thinking the way that our peers might think people around us. On the wide road, there's lots of people. Lots of people. And it's a party road. It's a happy place. It's a good road. It's a road where everybody has their own opinion and everybody's opinion matters and is right. Every kind of person can find their niche on the road. The bombastic party animal, the nervous warrior, the the depressed housewife, the overworked factory employee, the misunderstood teenager. There's a place on the road for you. Everyone has their own place. There are people that you can identify with. There are people that will care about your opinion and your thoughts. They're all on the road. But the way of Jesus Christ, it's narrow. It's hard and there are few on it. Because it is a counter-cultural movement. John Stott says that it's radical nonconformity. That's what Christianity is. Peter, in his first epistle, says in 2.11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's saying that we're aliens. We're we're not from this place anymore. We're sojourners. It's not as though we're planting ourselves deeply here. We're in exile and we're on the way back to the promised land. We're sojourning. And just as the song used to say, we're sojourners. We're just passing through right now. A disciple shouldn't see the world in the same way that the people without Christ see it. When we experience trial, it's not, it's not just random chance. It's about a perfect and loving God using every circumstance in our life to drive us more closely to Jesus Christ, to change us, to transform us so that we become something different. So we become like his son. The narrow gate has a hard path. And it says there are a few who find it. Many people will try to enter the kingdom of God on their own terms. They're like thieves and jumping over walls into sheep pens. That's what Jesus says in John 10. He says, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. If you remember back the story of Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, he's walking down the path after he's gone through the wicked gate. And there he sees two men tumbling over the left hand side of the wall. Into the narrow way. The name of the first man was formalist. And the name of the second man was hypocrisy. But Christian walks up to them and he says this. He says, gentlemen, where are you coming from? And where are you going? And they turn to him and they say, we were born in the land of vain glory. We are going to Mount Zion to praise the king. And Christian says to them, why did you not come in at the gate? Which stands at the beginning of the way. Don't you know that it is written that he who does not come in by that door but climbs up some other way, that man is a thief and a robber? So they begin to explain to him how all of this is going to work out. In fact, for a thousand years, other people just like themselves from the city of Vainglory have been doing this same thing. It's a shortcut. Instead of having to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the wicked gate, they simply walk horizontally across the map and leap over the wall onto the narrow way, their own way. And they told him this, if we get into the way, what does it matter in which way we get in? If we are in, we're in. You are on the way and we assume you came in at the gate and we are also in the way and came tumbling over the wall. Is your condition really any better than ours? This is what Christian says to them. He says, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude workings of your fantasies. You're counted thieves already, but by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you will be found true men at the end of the way. You come in by yourselves without his direction and you will go out by yourselves and without his mercy. But isn't that exactly what Jesus says? Just a few verses down from where we're at. There will be people who have thought themselves to be on the narrow way, but in reality, they were really just walking on the way that best suited them. There will be people. At the end, people who who walked an aisle, people who were baptized, people who were on a membership role, people who taught Sunday school, people who, who kept children in the nursery, people who preached. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not every one of these will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, the narrow gate has a hard way and few will find it. And the wide gate oh, it has an easy path. And many people will walk down it. So we've examined the gate. We've inspected the path. We, we've looked around a little bit at the people on the path. But we must also see the purpose for each path. We have to trust in God's purpose. Jesus says that the wide gate, the easy way, this place, this path leads to destruction. But the narrow gate has a hard way and it leads to life. And it ought to be clear when we look through the scriptures, we see these two destinations all over the place. And one of the most important places that we see it is John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, this, this will bring great clarity to us if we have uh, questions about this. In John chapter 3, we usually stop at verse 16. But if we'll extend that just a little bit, it helps us understand even more clearly how there are two ways and two destinations. Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there's there's two destinations. There's two gates. There's two paths. There's two destinations. There is life and there's destruction. There's life and there's condemnation. Friends, we must go through the narrow gate. We must Walk down the difficult, the hard path, because it's only at the end of that path that there is life. The psalmist writes these words in Psalm 1611. Speaking to God, he says, you make known to me the path of life. And that is what he has done through the scriptures for us. Even today, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are two paths that stretch out in front of us. And friends, the choice is inevitable. You have to make a choice. But I agree with Robert Frost, who wrote that poem, The Road Not Taken. Listen to what he says. He says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh I kept the first For another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way. I 
am doubtful if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. So friends, will we someday be in a place in ages and ages hence where we say, well, there were two roads, but we took the one less traveled by. And that, that's what's made all of the difference.